Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Please join with me as we read from God's Word, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 34. This event is Paul and Silas in prison. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and sing singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the doors of the prison flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in Jesus the Lord, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, then immediately he and his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey guys, uh, I'm Ben. If we haven't met before, it is great that we can come here together and open up God's Word. We're going to be covering that whole passage, even though only a little bit was on the screen. But let's pray first, and then we'll get into this passage. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can gather together today. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we can be reminded of all that you are, uh, of all that you have done and all that you are doing. Lord, we pray that as we gather here this morning, that you would shape us and change us and transform us. We pray that you would empower us to be the people you've called us to be in the nation where you've called us to live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is Australia Day uh, today. Uh, this is a day of mourning for some as they remember the hurt of the past. It's a day of celebration for others as they celebrate the freedom we have now. And it's a day where some people are entering into citizenship in Australia. And each Australia Day, there's an ad that comes around. Uh, for the last few years, I feel like it's only been the lamb ad that's been about. But this year, the only ad I've kind of seen consistently, I had to actually search for the lamb ad. But the, the main ad that's been going around this year is the ad promoting unity. I don't, I don't know if you saw it. It's the story of us. It's the story of we. Uh, it's a bunch of different people. And it says, play your part by listening to each other. That's kind of the idea. It's a real celebration of who we are as a nation. Now, it's kind of odd because as we gather together uh, celebrating, I guess, in some ways or remembering Australia Day, it feels a little bit weird because I feel like this year, unlike the last few years, kind of feels like as Australia, things aren't really going as they should be. I don't know if you've felt this, but as we kind of look around at our nation, if you listen to the news for five minutes, it feels like as a nation, we're in a little bit of a hopeless state. You know, you, you think about all the different things going on environmentally. Of course, we've got our, our whole nation is kind of on fire. We've gone from being known as the greatest nation on earth, the most beautiful place in the world, to literally we are now known as a country completely on fire. The, the air quality, you know, I don't remember ever a time where the air quality wasn't great. And now you hear like news articles of people dying from in Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra because of the haze. Uh, we have gone from this kind of high level to now we're on fire and it's smoky as. And then if it's not, you know, fires in 40 degree weather, it's once in a hundred year floods and storms. And it all just kind of feels a little bit strange. Then you've got politically. Our political front, right? The, the leadership can't seem to do anything right, whether it's their fault or not. I mean, they're being blamed for the fires in some points. And politically, our leadership just can't do anything right. Then you've got kind of everything else, economically, religiously. It feels like more people than ever are angry at God and the church. And, and when you kind of think about all of this stuff, when it compiles all together with the fact that we've got to go back to work and back to school and our own health problems and all of that other stuff, it kind of compiles all together and leaves us with this sense of hopelessness. This sense of that, that actually today, maybe there's not something to celebrate. There's not something to enjoy because right now when we look at our situation, when we look at us and our nations, it feels hopeless. And, and so the question is, as we gather together this morning, is there any hope in the hopelessness? Is there anything we can kind of hold on to, to celebrate? Is there a hope that we can have when everything's falling apart? When our world is caving in on us, is there a source of hope, something we can hold on to? Well, what we're going to do today is open up the Bible, and we're going to enter into another city, kind of like ours, uh, a little bit different to ours, a city called Philippi. And in Philippi, what we're going to see is that this too was a city of hopelessness. And, and so if you've got your Bibles there, we see how God works in the hopeless, and we pick it up in verse 16. It says this, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune teller. 
She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. So in a, in a hopeless world, do we have a hope? What is the hope that we have in a hopeless world? Well, what we're introduced to here in the city of Philippi is another city of hopelessness, right? So we are here uh, in the ancient world, a couple of years on from when Jesus died and has risen again, and here we are in this city of Philippi. Now, the story of Acts is the story of how Jesus' disciples are taking the hope to the nations, That's what they've been commissioned to do. That's their role. Take the hope of Jesus, the fact that he died and rose again to the nations. And here they are in the nations. They're in Philippi. This is their missional journey to Philippi. And it it all begins really well. Actually, you can kind of see this before this passage here, before verse 16. Their first entrance into Philippi, this girl Lydia becomes a Christian. That sounds good. You know, if this is your missional journey, if this is where you're going, this is a good start. This would leave you with high expectations, hopeful. But what we see is pretty much the opposite. Because Lydia becomes a Christian, they move on, and then here they're met by this girl. And this girl follows them around, and this girl can predict the future. She, she's being paid to tell people's fortune. And, and we're even told how she does that. She does that by the power of a demon, a spirit. Now, it, it's interesting because... In our world today, we live in the secular society where the material world is everything, right? That's kind of what what generally some people think. And it's interesting that when you have this worldview that the material world is everything, when people are confronted by the fact that sometimes there is more, so when people are confronted by fortune telling, people telling the future, when people are confronted by, you know, someone talking to the dead, when people are confronted by even things like ghosts, it kind of messes with them a little bit. You know, if your worldview is material, is everything, then when you start to see glimpses of this type of thing, it does mess with people a little bit. But the Bible gives us categories to understand this. This girl predicted the future by a demon. And this is the girl who's following Paul and Silas around. So this is your missional journey. You're in the city of Philippi. One girl becomes a Christian, and then you're confronted by this next girl who keeps following you around. And she speaks to them. And what she says is weird, right? It's strange. Did you catch it? Because she's walking around, this girl with a demon who predicts the future, and she's saying, these guys are servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you the way to be saved. That feels weird, right? That feels a little bit strange, and, and I don't know how you'd feel in that moment, but kind of going on mission, and you've got this kind of demon girl saying, you're from God, and you're telling people how to be saved. I don't know how you'd feel with that. You know, I don't even know how to process that. I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of cool, but maybe after a little while, it'd be annoying, which is almost how Paul reacts, because he gets annoyed by it, frustrated by it. And so after many days, we're told there, he speaks to this girl and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you to leave, and the demon leaves. Again, it's interesting. The demon has the power to predict the future, but not the power over Jesus' name. Throughout the Bible, this battle between God and the demonic, it's not a dualistic thing that goes back and forth, this arm wrestle. This arm wrestle. No, God is God, and his power rules and reigns, and demons must flee in his name. And so they cast this demon out. Now, again, this missional journey sounds good. 
doesn't it? One girl becomes a Christian, the next girl is freed from the power of darkness. Good start to a mission. But what we see from the city is not that they're happy about what's just happened. In fact, what we see from the city is hopeless. Because this girl's owners aren't happy about losing their source of income, they're angry by it. And we see this in verse 19. They realize what's just happened, that their money-making scheme is gone. And so they seize Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So they're not happy that their money-making girl no longer can predict the future. They're angry by it. They're annoyed by it. And so they grab Paul and Silas, seize them, and drag them in front of the magistrates. Now, what are you expecting in this moment? A fair trial? Royal commission into Paul and Silas? What did they do? What, how are they upsetting this city? I mean, if you're expecting any of that, what we get is hopeless. Because we read in verse 22, the crowd join in the attack. All of a sudden, we're in an attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. That escalated quickly. They've gone from one girl becoming a Christian, another girl freed from the power of darkness, to now beaten, severely flogged, in prison, and the guard says, look after these guys. So he grabs and puts them in the inner cell and watches them. They're, they're being treated here like the worst of the worst. And when you reflect on what's going on in this city, what do you see? Hopelessness. You know, this, this city's not even interested in entertaining the idea of God. They're not even interested in entertaining the idea of Jesus. As these people from Jesus, his messages come to bring the message of hope, it's hopeless. They're ending up in jail. They've been beaten and flogged and seized and severely beaten, put in the inner cell, a guard watching them. And when we look at Philippi, we see a city of hopelessness. You know, it's kind of, I don't know if it's just the world that we live in right at this moment with our media and social media and the outrage culture that exists, the clickbait culture that exists with every news article to get us to look at what's happening. But sometimes it does feel when you buy into that, that we're the first city or the first nation to go through something bad. You know, that's kind of what, it, if, you, if you zone in and tune in, it feels like we are in a more hopeless situation than we've ever been in before feels terrible where we are right now. But we're not the first city to go through this. We're not the first nation to go through hopelessness. Philippi did that. They've gone through that here and now. And you've got to feel for Paul and Silas because they're not just reading about this, are they? <laughs> this is their experience. They are feeling the weight of this. They have come to bring hope, and they are the ones who have just been beaten up and flogged and put in prison. And, and I wonder if this is you, if this is your experience, as you go to bring the hope to the nations, what are you feeling in this moment? You know, what thoughts run through your head if this is you in jail, covered in bruises, locked in chains? See, if it's me, I'm questioning God. 
If it's me, I'm wondering where is God in this? If it's me, I'm wondering why, why God would allow bad stuff to happen to good people. Why God would allow bad stuff to happen to someone who's trying to do good. If it's me, I'm questioning myself. I'm questioning my identity, my worth, my purpose, my life. I'm questioning if this was worth it. Why bring hope to a hopeless nation? Why bring hope when people don't want to hear it? And if it's only going to end with me being beaten and flogged and put in prison, I'm questioning God. And I think that's a normal reaction in moments of hopelessness. But see, what we see from Paul and Silas isn't questioning God. No, their response is outrageous. Because when we would expect them to be whinging or complaining or crying or questioning God in all that God has allowed to happen, what we get is the opposite. And we see their response in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I mean, we're expecting them to be whinging about God, and here they are in prison, covered in bruises. Like, we don't even know if they can barely speak, and yet here they are praying and singing to God. They're magnifying God in this moment, trusting God in this moment, celebrating God in this moment, and laying it all before Him. And as they're sitting there in prison, the, the other prisoners are watching them. Now, it raises a massive question, doesn't it? I mean, how can they be in that situation in prison? How can they be praying? How can they sing to God? How can they turn to God after all the stuff that's just happened? How can they pray to Him after trying to bring hope to this hopeless nation and ending up being beaten and flogged and put in prison? Why do they do that? Well, I think it's because they understand that even when hopeless situations exist, God is still in control and that God still brings hope in hopeless situations. So in the, in the last few weeks, we've had a bit of rain in our country, which has been nice. Uh, some of the fires have been put out. If you've seen that, I, I believe there's some that still exist. We drove last week, a few mates, uh, and I drove to 1770 last week. And on the drive to 1770, you, you see some of the places around Queensland that had been hit by fires. Uh, and it's kind of eerie when you drive through places that have just been smashed by fires. I don't know if you've experienced that, but everything is covered in ash, everything is dark, and it feels like there's no life that exists there. But we uh, kind of went far enough that uh, in some places when the fire had hit, so we went through some places where there was literally no life, but some places where we went, life was beginning to form. Uh, new plants were growing. And it was this amazing contrast because you had this moment of eerie, like, is this ever going to be life again in this moment? And then you could see green coming out. In fact, there was this picture this week, I don't know if you saw it on the news, of this exact thing happening where you, you get this picture of life being formed in the ash. And now, now I know that this is, you know, environmentally how stuff works. Like some plants need fire to grow. I, I get that. But it's still this kind of, it's almost breathtaking as you see in, in moments of death, life coming out. Now, I reckon Paul and Silas get this, not environmentally. Right? I mean, who knows what they thought environmentally, but I reckon they understand that in hopeless situations where everything looks black and dead, 
they get that it's in the hopeless situations that God moves and works and life is formed. And they get this because they've seen God do this. You know, if you go back through the story of Acts, you see God do this over and over again. And obviously it starts with the first and greatest moment at the cross. Because as Jesus breathes his last, as the spear is pushed into his body and he hangs on that cross, as he's covered in kilograms of linen and placed in a tomb, as the stone's put in front and the guard exists in front to stop anyone getting in, that's hopeless. That's a moment of death where you wouldn't think that life would be formed, but God, the God of hope, provides hope in the hopeless. He conquered death. And you see this pattern over and over again in the book of Acts. People get beaten up and the message of Jesus spreads. People die. You know, there's this account of Stephen who dies in Acts chapter 7. He gets put to death. And the very next chapter we see thousands of people come to faith. The church scatters and is beaten and persecuted. They must leave. And as they scatter, the hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus rises up in that moment of hopelessness. Paul and Silas understand that when all things look bleak and dark and when death exists, when, when everything looks dead, they know that it's there in the hopelessness that God rocks up and that hope is found. And so as they sit in jail, covered in bruises, locked in chains, their hope is Jesus. Their anchor in the storm is Jesus. He is the hope in the hopeless situation. And so they pray, they sing, they celebrate God. And, and what do we see? The God of hope turns up. We see this in verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The God of hope who works in hopeless situations, rocks up. And he does something only God could do. Provides an earthquake. The prison doors fly open. The chains fall off. God moves powerfully here. Chains won't stop God. You know, a prison's not going to stop God. He's the living God of the universe. And he shows up. The God of hope provides hope in a hopeless situation. He brings life where death exists. But see, the temptation here is to think that the hope that God brings is just temporary relief from prison you know that that's what it kind of feels like and that's the temptation to think that here but the hope that jesus provides the hope that god provides in hopeless situations isn't temporary relief because when the prison doors fly open they don't leave you know they could have gotten up and walked out of there but they don't and it's strange that they don't but what we're seeing here is that they don't leave because God is showing what type of hope he provides in hopeless situations. And it's not just temporary relief. I mean, sometimes he does that. You know, sometimes he does provide rain for the fires. But the hope that God provides in hopeless situations is greater than that. It's bigger than that. It's, it goes beyond this world. And it's the hope found in the name of Jesus. Because the jailer looks around, we see that there, and he's about to kind of kill himself. Because if the prisoners got free, he would have been put to death for that anyway. But Paul yells out and says, brother, you know, we're still here. 
and just feel for the jailer in this moment, that would mess with you. You know, like you've watched all of this unfold. You've seen Paul and Silas get beaten and whipped and, you know, flogged and put in prison. You've seen them then sing and pray. I feel like the whole time you would just be thinking, who are these guys? And then the prison doors open and they don't leave. And it, it messes with the jailer. It impacts him so much so that he runs in, he falls before him, for, before these guys trembling, and he asks this question in verse 30. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He sees there's a hope beyond the hopeless situation, and he asks about it. And Paul responds, and he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And he goes home, and him and his whole household believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. You see, the hope in the hopeless situation is found in the name of Jesus, the source of hope, the one who conquered death and rose from the dead, the one who reigns and rules over all, the one who in his name demons shriek, who breaks chains off. He is the source of hope that goes beyond this hopeless world. And here in a hopeless city, of Philippi, the jailer who had a big role in putting these guys in prison, sees Jesus, finds this hope, and trusts in Jesus as his Savior and his Lord and his source of hope. There is hope in a hopeless situation. Now, as we read this passage, you know, it shows us God works in the hopeless, but sometimes what can happen is often we can kind of read this passage and go, well, that was a back then type thing. You know, God worked like this back then, but he doesn't work like this now. And, and not only that, but we think, you know what, Philippi, fair bit worse than Australia. Like we would go, I don't know, we're Australians. So we go, well, it's just the media and the hype of the internet and stuff like that that makes us feel like, you know, we're in a bit of a difficult situation, but we'll be fine. You know, there's nothing Australians haven't got through before. We got through the floods of 2011 with the mud army, and now we'll get through this. It's not that bad. But it's interesting because when you start to understand our nation and where we really are right now and our history as a nation, I, I think what you start to see is that we could give Philippi a run for money in terms of hopelessness. You know, we often think Australia is the best nation on earth, and maybe that's true. I'm not the best judge of that. I mean, I've only been to New Zealand, and that was pretty good, to be honest. In fact, the Lamb ad this year is about us taking over New Zealand, which is... I don't know, maybe that's us identifying that they're good as well, or maybe better, I don't know. But we haven't always been this good. In fact, if you look at our history, we've had a history of hopelessness, and yet God has worked in the hopelessness. And so it's worth kind of reflecting on this on today, on Australia Day, to see how God has worked in our past as a nation, and God will work in our future. So last year uh, at Bible College, I did this subject called Australian Church History. And it struck me that as Australians, we even have a church history. You know, because it's crazy that we have a church history, that the church has existed in our past because the church entered into our country uh, when the settlers did. And in the early settlement in, in 1788, pretty much every aspect of that, you could argue, was hopeless. Pretty much every side of that could have been done better. And so when you reflect on the different aspects of the early settlement, so you've got obviously the relationship between Indigenous Australians and the early settlement. You know, in Indigenous Australians weren't given the God-given value as people made in the image of God that they should have been given. And they were mistreated. And you know, there might have been pockets where they were treated well, 
but kind of overwhelmingly, they were unfairly treated. Unfair trials, massacres. And the, the stat that messed with me, and I know that there was diseases introduced as well, that they didn't have vaccinations available to them. The, the stat that kind of hit me in this was uh, in 1788, the estimated population of our Indigenous Australians was 800,000. In 150 years, by 1930, it was just over 100,000. The, the relations between Indigenous Australians and the early settlers was, was horrible, was hopeless. And it makes sense that some people might not want to celebrate Australia Day on a, a day that landmarks the early settlement. Because when you think about it, it was messy. It was hopeless. But, but it wasn't just the relationship between Indigenous Australians and the early settlers. You also had convicts. You know, the, the, a lot of the early population in Australia were convicts. Just consider that for a moment. Britain, when they couldn't deal with their convicts, sent them to Australia. So welcome to Australia. You've got murderers and thieves. That's your population that you're going to start a new country for. Not only that, but a lot of the other convicts, if they weren't, you know, murderers or thieves, they were anti-government. You know, so Britain couldn't deal with them. So let's just send them away. It, it's our kind of God-given right from a very early time to rip into leadership. That's just what they did. That's who we are. But uh, fascinating in this, and I'm kind of proud of this moment as well. Brisbane was known as the worst of the worst. So they would send to Brisbane the absolute worst. Murderers, thieves. In fact, Moreton Bay, right, because of the mangroves and the mozzies, for a little while there was known as hell on earth. Death by murderers or death by mozzies. And the mozzies still exist. And, and so you sort of have this Moreton Bay, hell on earth, right? That's our, that's our nation for you. That's our city for you. This is not the best of the best. In fact, this is kind of the worst of the worst. So you've got relationships between Indigenous Australians. You have the convicts. Then you've got the chaplains, right? The, the guys who are meant to bring the hope of the nation to the nations, but the, there were some few problems with the chaplains. Uh, chaplains, to understand back then, were of the upper class. Uh, and uh, if you had studied, uh, you were a chaplain, but chaplains were the ones that couldn't get jobs as pastors. So they were the kind of subpar pastors. And uh, chaplains, yeah, would uh, oversee an area. Now, early on in Australia, they didn't even want to send a chaplain out to this mess. Uh, that would, they weren't going to send one out. And it wasn't until a few people petitioned that they should send one out. Interesting fact, William Wilberforce was one of the guys that petitioned to send a chaplain out. So they sent one chaplain into this mess. And, and this is a picture of uh, this first chaplain. His name was Richard Johnson. And he never really crossed the upper class, lower class divide. Not only that, he didn't get paid. He didn't get supported. He didn't really want to be here, and so he didn't last long. He burnt out with no significant fruit. That was our first chaplain. Then you got the second chaplain, which we don't have a picture for. That's how memorable this guy was. His name was Bain, and you wouldn't think it could get worse than the first, but he was worse than the first. His words literally were, I don't want to deal with the grubby lower class. And when Bain could get another job, he got another job. And left. He was here for a couple of years. 
Then you got our third uh, chaplain. This guy's name is Marsden. We do have a picture of Marsden. He is the most famous of the early chaplains, and he did lots of good stuff. He was an entrepreneur uh, who set up farms to fund his kind of ministry. He was one of the early guys who first invested in helping people understand the message. So he used illustrations, you know, which back then was a big deal. He did lots of good stuff, but our best early chaplain uh, was known as the flogging magistrate. See, chaplains would have the job to be the judges, and he was known for dishing out floggings. The, the line was, salvation on Sundays, floggings on Mondays. Welcome to Australia. You know, like, and, and when you think about this too, with the chaplains, literally zero effort was made to Indigenous Australians in the first 30 years. N- not any effort at all. So, so when you think about this, the first 30 years of, or a little bit more than that, of our kind of existence from settlement onwards, what do you see? You've got this picture of mess. You've got a picture of hopelessness. And yet, it's in this hopelessness that God worked and that God was gracious and compassionate And even though to humans it looks like a mountain too big to climb to get the hope into this nation, God was gracious, God was kind, and the hope came to this nation. And God worked through weak and broken people to help people see the message of Jesus. God worked through these weak chaplains, these kind of broken chaplains, these messed up chaplains in many ways. And through their efforts, God moved powerfully. Marsden would write 50 letters back to Britain, and of every 50 letters, one, chap, one more chaplain came, but eventually more people came. And missionaries eventually came to Australia, and people ended up hearing about the hope of Jesus. You even have early accounts, and it wasn't perfect, and it could have been done better, and we still have a way to, to go, of, of people investing in Indigenous Australians. There's a a story in Port Macquarie where they translated the message of the New Testament into their own language and Indigenous Australians began to hear the message of Jesus in their own language. The convicts, the settlers, we hear in all of this space, in hopelessness, God moved. So much so to the point that in Federation in 1901, an absolutely crazy amount of people, 96% of people on the census, ticked that they were Christians. Now, you don't want to read too much in that. You know, by that stage, it was a cultural thing. But I think at the very least, it shows us in hopelessness, God works. And in cities and nations of hopelessness, God is the source of hope. And even though everything looks like death, it's there that God moves. Now, we enter 2020, a new decade. We've moved on so far from 1901. No no longer are we a Christian nation. No longer are we a pre-Christian nation, but we are now a post-Christian nation where our nation has been there and tried that. We have new challenges to face, new wisdom to push into. But see, when we look out at our nation in that space, then you compile all the other stuff on, the environmental challenges, the economic challenges, the fact that there's a mental health epidemic we, we live in worlds of loneliness and anxiety, and you look at all that, the temptation is to think it's too big. It's too hopeless. It's a mountain too big for us to climb. But see, it's here 
in the hopelessness that God works. And so we can't afford to buy into the media hype. We can't afford to buy into the angry minority on social media. We can't afford to listen to the people that are going to say, Christianity is going to die in a few years. We can't listen to that because it's in the hopelessness that God works. It's here that God works. And since it's here in the hopelessness that God, God works, it's here that we must go. Because it's here that God is. It's here that we must push. It's here that we must go past the discouragement. It's here that we must invest in relationships. It's here that we must go into our schools and our workplaces and our unis and our neighborhoods. It's here that we must invite. It's here that we must invest. It's here that we must speak because it's here that God works. It's here in the hopelessness that God provides hope. And even if we look out and see literally a, na- a nation that's covered in ash, it's in the moments of death that life is formed. And God moves in weak people to see the message of Jesus, the hope of the nations. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that it's here that you work. Lord, we are so thankful that it's in moments of hopelessness that we see the grace of God shine brightest. God, it's here that you are and it's here that you work to help people see the hope of Jesus, the hope that goes beyond this world. And so, God, we pray that as we see this truth that you would empower us that you would enable us and equip us and that you would put in us a deep passion and a deep fire to move into our nation, a nation without hope. Lord, we pray that you would help us bear this responsibility and this weight to help people see the hope of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.